0: project management, and PMO doesn't have to be boring. The Project Chatter Podcast brings you no BS real speak on project topics, business changes, and the latest in techniques from industry leaders around the world. Take a back seat as the Boys at PC Podcast take you on a journey of interesting banner. Stories and analogies to help demystify the science of projects and controls. Welcome to the Project Chatter Podcast, proudly sponsored by the world's largest aggregate of project management content in the world. Think of it as an interesting project info on demand. Take a conversational tour through the complexities of living with and on projects. Project Chatter Podcast is your real speak podcast. Tackling the questions on schedule, scope, cost, risk, change, governance, reporting, big data, and much, much more.
1: Good there in Australia. How are you? Good morning there, Dale. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. So you, uh, you, it's not too late for you there?
2: No, I'm primed and ready, man. I, I like to spend my nights... Um, doing podcasts with you it's just the best thing in the world um, what a nice what a nice intro too uh, hopefully um, when we, we do some more of these we, we get this intro nailed down and we just absolutely layer on the flattery um, it's
1: great <laughs> how, how do you feel about that it's probably the nicest things I've ever said about you
2: <laughs> well after you hear my journey you might be regretting it but uh, no,
1: <laughs> and how, how, fun, you feel, how are you feeling about um, being interviewed today
2: I'm okay with it. Like, you know, surprisingly, I, I, I use a lot of my own stories and parables and metaphors like you do to explain to probably younger people joining the industry, uh, what it's like. And, and it's not always an easy road and there's obstacles and, you know, cause, cause a lot of the time people come out of uni or they come out of school or wherever they think, uh, you know, getting that hundred k paycheck or becoming a project manager is an easy job. And let me tell you project management and project controls. I, Kind of put them in the same basket from a industry perspective. That it's a craft that that's it's probably more earned over the years in terms of experience rather than some academic certificate that you can get off or online. Um, so so I, I kind of give them a bit of uh, a brief history and time, if you like, of our uh, which 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 goes yeah quite far. So we can we can get stuck into it. Good if
1: you like. good. So um, let let's start there actually. Let let's start with you know adam Val matthews the the teenager in school um what, what did oh, you, Jesus. you <laughs> as a school kid were you were you a bit of a um a studious kid were you rebellious were you a sports were you a bit of an all-rounder how were you as a teenager at school
2: um probably three things so i i, I didn't really get a lot out of school to be honest and mm-hmm. uh so so i was a bit of a rebel and that's not a surprise for anyone who knows me uh very sporty so i did a lot of sports um my grandfather was a black belt fifth down in judo. So he taught all the kids and then I lived in a little country town in Adelaide. So, you know, there wasn't much to do. So if we weren't at school, we we're probably getting into trouble. So my grandfather set up a an institute to teach kids judo. Uh, so I did that. And he was also a, a grade squash player. So I inherently picked up squash, played cricket, basketball, soccer, you know, did the probably the Australian thing and played every sport I could. It was reasonably good. And back then, you know, Australia was winning stuff internationally <laughs> um and and then for the school curriculum i think more than anything i was bored uh you know i i, I had a difficulty in terms of learning when i was growing up so you know, learning difficulties and also like uh adhd so it was easy for me to drift and and have attention problems and uh so that that didn't go down well with like strict schooling back in the 80s yep. um when not when i grew up um, i think schooling's changed somewhat if i look at kind of my kids and how they're growing up um and and that's yeah that's kind of my my childhood and school entry. I, I'd say I was pretty rebellious. Though. I was I was in trouble a lot.
1: <laughs> and you know what? That's um, it's quite interesting. You 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 hear a lot of it, and um, you know, obviously your your story will be unique to yourself as well. But a lot of it it, it doesn't hinge on you know the most studious of types of people that are successful. Uh, it, it what what counts more often than not is what I've certainly realised is personality. Um, and yeah, and whether or not you do well at school is, isn't is a, a certainty on whether or not you'll do well after school. But it's just interesting yeah. to hear a bit of your background as well. So. Yeah,
2: well, doing well at school, I think, was was probably the, the catch. So the third point around that was entrepreneurship, I think, was inherently part of my growing up for some weird reason. Whilst I wasn't very academic at the start, um, mainly because I was bored, I think. Um, you know, I remember being, I don't know how old, I must have been like five maybe maybe a little bit older and i would um i was quite good at drawing my family's quite artistic surprise i'm not artistic now but and uh back then i used to do drawings and i I realized really quickly that i could sell the drawings and and so at recess and lunch i would sell pictures that i had done for kids maybe commissions or pictures of jordan were very popular back then michael jordan was the a star um yeah would sell them for yeah, that's it, number 32, uh, 23, sorry. And, and I would uh, I would sell them for like 20 cents, 50 cents, and people would buy them. And uh, I would, nice. my, my teacher would, would let me have like a, a little kind of stand uh, at recess and the kids would come in. And I, I got a, I got an understanding of business back then um, and, and and people in particular. So I thought that was interesting because when I think about it, um, not necessarily project managing, but... But definitely the, the, the behavioral piece of how, how people at least think and make decisions was yeah. was a very big part of me growing up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely a very, very vital lesson there, you know, in terms of how no matter what you do, it's all about, you know, people. Um, so so then, so so you're in school, you're this rebellious teenager. What, what did you want to be when you grew up? What was your what was your mindset back then? What what were your options?
2: I have no idea. I think I was one of those kids that didn't really have like one of those plans. And I think a lot of, well, especially a lot of younger generation or, you know, the the millennials are struggling with that today that, you know, you've got to have a plan. But a lot of them are really lost and, uh, you know, school doesn't really prep you for the real world as such. And I didn't really have like a, a mission as such. I just felt like I was going to be very adaptable uh so I could I could probably turn my hand on a lot of different things and I and I definitely have uh and I still do and and maybe that's the skill uh but it's not so much as a vocation like I never thought you know other kids were thinking I'm going to be a firefighter or a a policeman I couldn't think of anything more boring um and and you know I didn't really enjoy teaching because I had pretty pretty ordinary teachers in primary school so I was like well Maybe I thought the best, the, probably the closest thing I was going to get to any kind of vocation was what my grandfather or my family was doing. They ran um, like a local real estate agent. So they were the only real estate agent in town um, and his name was Ray. So it was Ray Matthews Real Estate and and uh, and everyone knew him and everyone knew the family. And, you know, I kind of liked going to open inspections and, and closing the deal. And But my, my granddad used to work weekends and I thought that was pretty shit. So, you know, there was... <laughs> I don't think I ever had like a, that's it, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and I probably still don't to this day, but I, I do enjoy what I'm doing. So, so, so there you go.
1: Okay. So, so, you know, you're this teenage guy. You're not clear on what you want to do. What happens next? You leave school. Um, what happens? Do you do you, do you go to uni, do you get a, get a job. What, what happens next? What, what's the, uh, the young adult?
2: The adolescence is like just a blur of me getting in trouble with the law and, doing stupid shit and and i guess there's like a whole bunch of people that do that
0: <laughs> yeah
1: no there's loads you're not alone in, in that
0: yeah yeah, yeah. In that field. and uh,
2: <laughs> and uh and then i i I, uh, I had kind of a crossroads i guess if you if you like and i thought you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna join the navy because i had a big passion for ocean surfing and we had a beach house and the families there every year so i had good memories around water and i love swimming and you know kind of outdoorsy stuff so i thought well the navy sounds pretty safe and and, uh, and I'm not really doing anything in Adelaide. Let's, let's be honest. It's, it's like a, a small town in South Australia. There's one and a half million people in this city. And, you know, everyone kind of knows each other, which, which is probably really not that effective if you're rebellious and naughty because you get in trouble and everyone knows who you are. So I thought I could make more trouble and, and travel a bit as well by getting out and joining the Navy. So that's what I did. I think I joined. I think I enrolled when I was 17 and a half. And then I joined when I was 18.
1: Wow. Wow. Mm. Okay. Mm. So in the navy, how how long you in the navy before? uh six years. Six years. Did you did you go anywhere interesting? uh well, it
2: was it was interesting, right? So, um, I remember sitting down with the recruiter, and the recruiter said to me, "So, what do you want to do? Do you want to go navy, army, air force?" I'm like, "Well, let's let's explore my options." So, so so she goes, sits down, go through the various types of roles that they had so air force was completely out because I think they had security guard and a few other ordinary jobs so I said look I think you know I think I can punch you above security guard not dissing any security guards on the on the podcast but I'm just you know it wasn't for me and I was skinny as so I don't know how I'd be a good security guard anyway um <clears throat> the other one was um I think it was a clearance diver which is kind of like a commando in the navy and uh, I thought that was a bit too dangerous um kind of enjoyed having my life and didn't really thought I was you know um, that way inclined so I I said no to that one um, and I landed on uh, mechanical engineering uh, purely because it sounded challenging and I didn't really know what was involved and it sounded like um, I was required to kind of understand how things work and, and do kind of difficult tasks at sea and it, it had longer prospects uh, other after kind of the Navy you could you could be a mechanical engineer. You could be a marine engineer. You could stay in the merchant navy. So it had like avenues, and I thought that was that's a good one. Um, so I ended up picking that, uh, and I did my recruitment training in Victoria. There's a big navy base in Victoria. It's called H.M.S. Cerberus, and they they send us all down there to get indoctrinated and brainwashed. I mean, trained, and and yeah, the, and 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 the weird thing is, when we were there. We we're doing our technical training, you know, past recruit school, and um, and that's when September 11 happened, so I remember it. Uh, oh, wow. I wow. I was in my dorm, and uh, a friend of mine come through. He lived next door. He came around. He said, you got to turn the TV on. I it was like 10 o'clock in the morning. And, and we're watching these, you know, the Twin Towers. Obviously, you remember the Twin Towers uh, yep. getting hit, and you're like, this looks like a it looks like a movie. You know, this can't be yes. real. But but it was yeah. everywhere. Um, and so the funny thing was when I – because when you finish your school training and all this in the navy, you get to, you get preferences. You get three preferences on where you want to go and what you want to do. And I said, well, I'd love to fish and I love the sun, so I was thinking like Darwin posting or perhaps you know hanging off the end of cut cans on a patrol boat somewhere, uh, fishing. Um, but as as it would be that. Five of us, I think, was it? Three of us were uh, kind of finished up with our course and and told to go directly to Sydney. We didn't have a choice, and uh, and we we'll were posted to a ship, which was a, uh, at the time was the biggest um, amphibious ship, which carried tanks and troops and uh, helicopters, etc. Uh, it's kind of like a navy support vessel, and um, yeah, we were sent to the Gulf. So we were sent to Afghanistan and Iraq wow. in 2003, I think it was, and I. I, I remember bits, but, but it was a bit of a blur because it was so quick that it happened. Yeah, And um, it was just really bizarre, like, to hear, you know, we, we ported in Afghanistan and I was a sentry guard there. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't, we, didn't, we weren't looking at hard killing or anything, but you could hear it, you know, you could, yes. you could see it. You could you could hear it at night and, and you could see the fireworks and, you know, they weren't the nice kind of fireworks. They were, um, yeah. so it was just a bizarre kind of experience and I must have been maybe 19 or something um so so yeah we did a a, a stint over there I think I was there for about six months uh just patrolling the waters and providing supplies we you know did all that and uh and then we got the call we come back to Australia I think we went to Perth and then we ended up having another posting and getting posted to Solomon so we did a back-to-back commission which was pretty pretty intense Wow. Um, just did some peacekeeping there and built a hospital and did some pretty cool stuff. That was a bit different. Um, Solomon Islands is really beautiful and the people are really lovely. Um, and then I come back and I'm like, I don't really want to do that anymore. <laughs>
1: so,
2: <laughs> so uh, that, you know, that was probably after that. I spent another two years on the on the ship, um, yeah. HMS Menorah. And, and then I thought uh, I need to start looking for something else. And I've uh, wow. got the itch.
1: I've got the itch to. To move yeah to move on into the next stage of your life well it sounds like the Navy was quite a, a sobering experience for you um, you know um, and, and and I guess I guess gave you a bit of a um, view on what you know is happens in the world out there you saw you know you experience some not so nice things in the world and mm. um, and and you know it sounds like um, it gave you a, a bit of perspective um, from what you're saying, coming from your, you know, teenage self to your now young adult um, persona. So, so okay, so you come out of there, you you experience a raft of different things in the Navy, um, all great stuff. Um, you're now looking to move on. What, what are you thinking then? What's what's next for Val? Oh, you're
2: going to laugh at this bit. So, well, I, I ended up off finishing up on the on the ship and Usually you don't spend that much time on a ship. They, they try and stop you from having too much time away. It makes you crazy, I suppose. And they put us on this um, this kind of, uh, well, it's called Fleet Base East. It's in Garden Island in Sydney, and it's one of the major uh, bases. And uh, and we're working in a fab shop, effectively, called the Combat Systems or Support Unit. And, and my job there was really just to learn skills and train others. So I got a taste for kind of leadership and delegation there, I think. I started doing a bit of project management work. Uh, leading a whole bunch of kind of fresh semen in through um, like various courses so metal fabrication lagging asbestos removal wood shop working and cabinet making bit of bit of chippy work and I really liked it I really liked uh, the reward of of training people up and getting their competency signed off and um, and just seeing them kind of go out on their own and do it I was like oh you know kind of like a proud dad moment kind of deal yeah and I thought this is great I like this and I was talking to the chief and I said look I'm I'm probably going to finish up in the next couple of you know months this is quite. I was there for about 2 to 3 years and uh, I didn't want to renew my contract and he said look you should have a chat to some of the contractors because they're looking for people and they love ex servicemen um, and on the island there's a number of kind of private equity uh, private private equity private companies that um, that are working with the navy and various other kind of Sydney uh, transport companies to to fit out ships to upgrade ships etc and i thought that's a nice transition because to work, to li- to live and understand how the navy works and then to work on navy projects i think i could transfer a lot of those skills and seemed like a natural fit so and i remember the day i remember it cuz uh, so i found a job it was for a assistant project controller assistant project controller i, I, I wow. don't know what that is now yeah, yeah yeah it's like if there's a lower lower rung it's probably assistant to the assistant project controller but then you know you start somewhere don't you and you do um, everyone starts somewhere i remember his name His name was John Ulitzi. And I remember I got an interview and I walked over from the combat support unit. And in that time I'm in my Navy kind of uniform, which is just overalls. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I stink. I'm like, I didn't put any prep into it. I was thinking back. I'm like, I wonder why, you know, you just, but we sat down and we had a chat and uh, he was, it was really pleasant. Um, And to this day, he still works at the same place. I think from, from what I understand. And, and he kind of asked me about what it is and what I do and, and uh, he, he, took a, he took a leap of faith and said, uh, we'll give you a go. A- and that's how it kind of started. And that company was TALUS.
1: Wow. Sydney. Yeah. So, um, you know, almost every single person I speak to um, that's got, you know, a decent amount of years of experience has fallen into controls or PMO. Um, I think now mm. there's obviously, you know, as we know, there's apprenticeships in the UK, certainly. And I think they're in, in, in the US and some of the other countries. I don't know if they're in Oz. But it's really, really interesting to hear your story about how you fell into it, you know. Um, so, okay, so you, you go you go across, uh, you meet this guy, you, you're the assistant to the assistant. Um, what, what do you do? What, what, what's your, your first kind of, I mean, you know, is this where you you, you fall in love with it? Or was it immediate? Or was well, it kind of took you a little while to go, oh, this is really what I want to do? Um, yeah. How, how, how was that for you? What was that journey?
0: I
2: think, I mean, just thinking back, I mean, I was pretty blessed. I mean, when I walked into this, so I was working on a particular project, the the fast frigates that we had, they were upgrading some software, I believe, some some kind of warfare upgrade or something like that, maybe some ship fit out as well um, on existing Navy ships. So I was pretty excited. I was like, I didn't know what Project Controls was <laughs> from memory. I, <laughs> I, don't, don't I
1: don't think anyone does when they start out. No,
2: no. But back then there wasn't like there wasn't a Project Controls Expo. There wasn't all this software. Like it wasn't the hype it is today. So you can, you, I know you know. Uh, and I remember walking in and everyone being very pleasant and and welcoming. And then they introduced me to my team, and I was like, oh, this is great. Everyone in my team was at least sixty years old. I kid you not. And uh, there was three of them. So I used to, so once we got acquainted and we became friends, I used to call them the three wise men: uh, Craig, uh, Tom, and um, Peter. And it sounds biblical. It does. And that sounds that's like it. A, like a bar joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bar, it's a bar joke, and it's in the Bible as well. And um, you know, this was my 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 baptism into Project Controls. And these wow. guys these guys were incredibly good at what they did. I think maybe it was because I was naive and young, but but also they were very attentive. So Peter was the uh, master scheduler, and uh, and uh, I think it was Tom. Tom, I can't remember now. Um, didn't spend much time with him. Wait, Pete, I oh, don't know. Tom, no, Tom Shepherd was the master scheduler. There you go. You're testing my memory now. There we go. And then he and then he had a sidekick who was like a master, who was like a scheduler who was like support. And then Craig Terry, who I spent most of my time with, was the earned value manager. And I'm like, what the hell is earned value? Like, I had no idea. And he it's was a dark so patient. Art, isn't
1: it? The first time you hear about yeah. it, it's a dark art.
2: No, well, I'd never done any project management. I'd never done like you know, formal formal study in that in that regard. I, I thought he was talking rubbish. Um, the first thing he did is sat me down with the Australian standards of 4817. This guy still carried around a calculator and manually checked to make sure everything added up. And uh, whilst he was incredibly um thoughtful and and thorough he was so slow and for someone who has problems with focusing <laughs> we 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 struggled sometimes i felt like i wanted to press the buttons on the calculator for him i'm like craig come on just step it up a bit and so i learned my planning in p6 or p3 and short track and i learned from a tool called cobra which was the Tech product at the time for cost management or earned value management those two tools were at the time kind of the tools to have they were the top shelf um, and they were complex like if you've never been in that you know for people coming in from grads uh, any like anyone looked at these guys within the team they were just considered as the all-seeing eye you know Something out of Lord yeah. of the Rings. They just, they just, they just saw it and understood everything. And a lot of their stories were quite similar to ours, where they kind of come off the tools and they were in the trades. Like the, the master planner, he he had been working in the shipyard for forty years prior to actually becoming a planner, and then he became a planner. And he used to use pieces of string and nodes and you know kind of doing the network tire diagrams. And so he comes from a. Kind of out of space world that that no one would understand. It's like you know, showing someone who's five years old today what a tape cassette is, and say, figure that out. And you'd be like, they wouldn't be able to do it because it's just yeah. a different era. So these guys, and, yeah, this is, uh, I spent yeah, a solid two years uh, on this project, just absorbing um, everything they had to offer.
1: Yeah, that's good. I mean, I, I was just thinking while you're chatting there. You know, you, you talk about you know your dyslexia and how you struggle, and then all of a sudden you're in this. Project controls EV world with all these acronyms. I mean, what 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 happened to you when you first heard BCWP and ACWP? And you know, I mean, you obviously can't oh get it now.
2: Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. But but I, I won't lie. It it took me a while. And um, and you know, it, I think because I had such knowledge at my hands, and and I think you know, this was probably before, you know, it, well, well, it wasn't that old? I mean, but even the internet wasn't as fantastic as it is today we didn't have the internet like we have the internet today, if that makes sense. Like yeah. people didn't go online to search. It still wasn't a real regular thing to do, especially if you've been in the Navy. Cause really for me getting in at I think it was 2001. I started in the Navy. Yeah, um, you know, the internet's been around for what, 10, 11 years, 12 years, really. It, it's st- like, we're still using Lotus on the ships. I, I just barely knew how to email and type uh, and everything was still printed out in kind of physical format. So yeah, the people listening to this who are young, they're just going to blow. It. They're not going to understand. How, I don't know how to describe <laughs> it any, any better. But the, I mean, the good thing was is if you learn long division, short division's a breeze, right? Uh, yep. And you understand conceptually what it's trying to do, and and that's what I got. I got the long division of earned value. I understand conceptually every part of it, and to have that and then frame it into different projects is really really great. Um, so so it was it was a really good. Really good time in my life, actually. Um, I yeah. really enjoyed that piece. Yeah,
1: and and I guess a couple of things um, that comes out of that is that you know, again, chatting to a lot of different people um, that come into controls, especially you know, people that came into controls in sort of in the the 2000s, or you know, the, as you say, it, it was usually people that had been long in the tooth in terms of their career, and they mm-hmm. they knew it all. Nothing was really written down. It was all in their heads. It was all done manually. Um, but I think the key thing for a lot of us was having really good teachers and, Mm. um, you know, it sounds like you had some really good people around you that were willing to share. Um, yeah, I I find that you, you you know, in, in today's industry that that is becoming quite rare. People, you know, do like to keep it to themselves, but you do get, um, a few out there that are still willing to, to share the knowledge. And I guess that's what we're trying to do here with this podcast, which is great. Um, but, but yeah, it sounds like you had some really good folk around you and how would you just, just using your story there, how would you, uh, go about, um, just, just sharing, I guess a few hints and tips for those listening to this, how would, how they would go about just stopping there to pause and reflect, but how they go about looking for good mentors in the industry today?
2: Yeah uh well the the important thing is is to focus on on the outcome because uh, and when i mean outcome i mean about their careers the the thing that i realized later on because i'm getting old now like you know hitting hitting bars of like 40 and that 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 scares me a little bit but (laughs) but back then when i was young and and um, i never really chased the dollar and i really did chase the experience and and i think if you look at some of the behaviours of especially some of the behaviours of people I've interviewed probably over the last five to six years, it's more it's more and more about salary. Now I know things are more expensive and it's harder to get a break and maybe potentially, but but I think if you're getting into project management for the or project controls for the big salary ticket and and, and by all means, you know, for the really good ones, you, you you'll get your remuneration. It's you're gonna miss out on, on finding those people that you need at the start. And I think if you're foundational, if you're just, if you're listening to this and you're level one and, and you're, and you're trying to find someone who, who gets it, uh, you got to find uh, someone who, who's willing to do it, at, not at a price. So there's, there's a lot of people out there that, that, that'll be willing to sit with you and share with you as long as you're going to do something with it and not just use it to, you know, kind of uh, fast track your own career, if that makes sense. So yeah. I, I think I've been, I've been grateful that I, I've always had a philosophy of picking my manager. Uh, so, you know, when John Ulitsi gave me that first role, when I sat down with Tom Shepard and Craig Terry, the old, you know, two of the three wise men, I, I picked them. I didn't have to stay. I, I always gave myself the choice. And I've always done that in most roles I've had. Um, I think Bartoo where I kind of inherited a boss uh, because of reorgs and etc. But most of the time I've picked my manager and my manager has, has given me kind of exemplary uh, detail and information about how to be a better project controls, how to be a better leader, how to be a better person in, in this industry. And I, I think that that kind of summates my, my success story and my journey over the whole kind of 15 years is that I've managed to jump industries by picking these really, really good um, leaders, really. Yeah. If you think about it, uh, it it's, a, it's a leadership quality that you're looking for.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, um, just just listening to you there um, in terms of your story so far, you, you've got this um, you've got this strong desire and want to continuously learn. Um, and I think that's part of it. Well, so it's, you know, it's a it's 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 really a, a double edge sword Um, you know one is having good teachers but you yourself have to be open and and willing and able to learn and I think you you continue to to do that today Um, you know having worked with you in the past and um, and and getting to know you Um, and and part of that also is is your your love of reading when did that start when when did you were you always a a big reader I mean you say you weren't that Ah. studious and academic in school Um, did you read much when you were in school when did that start
2: I read a ton. I think I was a little bit, um, I, th- I think I still am a little bit introverted. Surprisingly, a lot of people are surprised when they they think I'm intro- not introverted. No. But I started reading. Yeah. When I was, when I was a kid, uh, probably in my teens, I say I really picked it up. Uh, didn't have like a lot of game boys and toys. Like, uh, we lived in the country and, you know, we didn't live a very luxurious life. My, my grandparents looked after us a lot, uh, while Mum was working and, and, uh, and so, we kind of we were either playing outside when we could uh, and I used to collect lizards uh, with my uncle <laughs> on the property so we had like a five five acre property and we collect blue tongues and put them in a ring and I don't know and when I wasn't doing that I was reading and I remember that's when the uh, R.L. Stein Goosebumps books came out and so uh, I would read all of them you know and I, I would read one in a couple of hours and then I'd be like right I'm going to pick up another one so I might read two or three in a, in a week and uh, and then it just kind of escalated from there. And then something switched maybe after I got out of the Navy. I, I switched from kind of fiction to nonfiction, And I just wanted to consume everything about the subjects that I was working in. And that's not stopped. So if you if you looked at my house today, if I expand around, you know, there's books everywhere. And my daughter, who's nine now, she, she's exactly the same. So her room is just full of books. I've got her a Kindle, but she rarely uses it because everyone... I don't, I don't know, her and I are very similar in the way that we consume books. There's one in the toilet, there's one in the bedroom, there's one on the car. Um, just just kind of just in case, you know, I get 20 minutes to myself, I might
1: just read something. I don't want to know too much about how you consume your uh, books in the toilet. But anyway, <laughs> um, thanks for sharing. Well, it's better no, than that, having that's... your iPhone in there, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I guess, I guess, because you've got to put that to your ear. Um, that's it. So yeah, no, that that's really interesting because I mean, you know, there's so much out there to to read, um, and um, you know, it, it's it's just really interesting to to hear from people whether or not you know that reading was a part of who they were from a young person or if it's something they picked up later because I think it's such a integral part to to anyone's learning. Um, so before we move on so so we, we left off with your career you were you were at talus with you know these wonderful um teachers that you had around you um and some of the projects you worked on you, you touched on that was there anything in your early, in the early stages of your career that you particularly struggled with in in controls or pmo um that that you it took you a while to get around um and and, and some of this, maybe share some of the the lessons you learned uh, along the way there as to how you overcame them
2: yeah, and it's definitely focusing like uh, my in, my current career now is leaning towards what I struggled with at the start of my career, which is really interesting kind of inverse there. If, so when I was younger, I felt like regardless of how much I understood the data and the information that was presented, presenting the information and articulating it became difficult. And I guess maybe that's part of just uh, you know, good practice and training. And I didn't have exposure to that growing up, uh, you know, presenting in front of people. So so I feel like that that was a missing skill and I had to develop that myself while I was on the job as such. And I feel like it's probably the first thing that's not focused on or or kind of parked when we talk about developing our people. They normally focus on the what well, they did, the physical kind of output treating um you know people like transactional right, robots, you know. Well, you are a dock controller and this is your job and here's the spec and this is your output and and it was very robotic how job specs were, were, were written, how CVs were written back then. I, I don't know if you remember, like, you know, um, HR was very stringent. You had to have certain amount of experience and a certain amount of qualifications, favoring qualifications over experience too, uh, where now the paradigm shift a bit. I think it's it's far more important to have attitude, communication, leadership, and those quali- mm-hmm. qualifications in terms of experience, not, not just pieces of paper. And so it was very difficult one to get the time off and to get the kind of investment because you wanted your company to buy into your your development plan. But but you know preference to none. Soft skills became uh, secondary while I was I was working through. And then at some point you know as I, I kind of I kind of fast tracked a lot of roles really. And I think it was just because I could interpret the data and at least one on one I could I could re- reiterate that information to leaders and they could use that and that that made me valuable. So I I kind of climbed the corporate ladder. That way, but I got to a point where now there was more expectation on me to present and communicate effectively, and so my bookshelf changed. If you like, my my genre changed. I was more in the self help section. It was less nonfiction. It was more self development. You know, I started reading all, all sorts of different works. I started reading debaters. I still do now. I've got some really great ones that I, I I still read and listen to, and, you know, one of the first books I bought. I remember it was like Great Speeches of the Century or something. You know, and I had all these great leaders and, and I had a CD in the back of it. And I, I must have read that book like three or four times because I just I felt like it was a, a very big challenge. And I knew for some reason, I knew that it was important to my future career. So I did some courses. And back then, there wasn't, not there wasn't a lot, but specifically for project staff and communication and understanding others. It wasn't about just you speaking it was about them hearing and listening and understanding and it's a it's a send receive signal so mm-hmm. i spent a lot of time looking at alternative communication methods that led me down the route of learning about things that are you know probably not traditionally kept within communication leadership i, I looked at hypnosis and hypnotherapy i looked at psychology uh, you know young and um and Freudian kind of psychology. I looked at neuro-linguistic programming, so Richard Branson and, and John Grinder, and their work around modeling some of the really interesting, uh, Virginia Satir and Fritz Perls, and, and all these really interesting characters who had specific gifts for communicating with their subjects or with their, th- with their clients. And I was like, wow, this is a really interesting uh, field. And so I, I spent a lot of time reading this stuff and I did a whole bunch of courses. I must have spent thousands, thousands in seminars and books and self-help kind of audios. And um, it got to a point where I got certified as a trainer, and I was I was going to go down that route. And and then I realised that I still think that controls needs me. So I went back into controls and did some more. But I, I utilised all that information back into my role, and it and it definitely 100% um, helped me overcome that challenge because it's really difficult. If and I, you know, we've done some insights, and you probably do some, you know, uh, psychometrics, and you you know some people just are introverted in nature and don't necessarily. It's got nothing to do with their intelligence, by the way, but it's it's got it's it, it can become a blocker and perceived as you not being very valuable to the group. Yeah. And that's unfortunate because it happens a lot. We've seen it. It you know, does in group, and someone will always make a lot of noise and they'll have a lot of rattles and. And unfortunately, the people who are the smartest in the room don't necessarily speak up, and and unless they're encouraged to, it, it it kind of they they miss that that opportunity, and that's the challenge: is is how do you get smart people to speak up? Yeah. And uh, I I don't consider myself super smart, but I consider myself resourceful enough to to be a you know a value in a meeting. So I I need to be able to communicate these these issues. So I I still yes. see that as a challenge, not just for myself, but for others as well.
1: And if you compare that to some of the top sportsmen in the world, you know, you, you I've heard quite a few different interviews. Um, you know, if, if you're, if you're a really top uh, football or soccer, soccer player in the world or cricketer or rugby player, whatever the case may be, a lot of these guys actually play other sports and mm-hmm. they also look into psychology and things like that. And, you know, the psychological approach and particularly in team sports about how they communicate and things like that. So I, I think that's that, that adds even more um, to what you're saying that, you know, to be a good project controls or PMO person or project manager doesn't require you to just understand projects. Well, it requires you to understand people, communication, yeah. um, team dynamics, behaviors, the work. So, so yeah, mm. that, I mean, we take lessons from sports every day. Um, and yeah, so, so that's really, really interesting. Um, okay. So coming back to your career, you're at TALUS. How long are you at Talus for? your first stint there
2: uh i think it was two years um yeah it was about two years and mm-hmm. then um i got offered another role in back in adelaide so i left sydney and i got offered um kind of a senior cost analyst role um which is pretty crazy you know, i was six i was, I was what 20 maybe 24 <laughs> yep. and i was a senior cost analyst for the largest uh Shipbuilding program in, in Australia's history, which was the air warfare destroyer program, which I think was around eight billion at the time. And it was huge. It was it was massive and a very complex earn value based, which was kind of by that time, you know, I knew in and out. Thanks to Craig Terry. Big shout out if he's listening. Hopefully he's still around. Um And and uh, and I spent a lot of my time there uh, kind of setting it up and uh, and I was first introduced to probably um, uh, a friend of mine, Tina. We she's still in she's she's working at Future Subs now, but she was heading up kind of the alliance, and she was introducing new software. And this is where I got introduced to, to Project Controls and the software contingent, if you like. All these add-ons and modules and integration was a big word, and analytics. And the first time I heard AI was was at AWD. And they were using like primitive AI narrative, and and they were using bullseye charts and weird shit that I'd never seen before. And I was like, yeah, I really love this place. <laughs> and, the, and and the, and the and the setup was beautiful, and it had this huge missile over your head, and it just felt like you're in like a like it felt like NASA or something. You felt really kind of cool, and it was on the shipyard facing the dock, and I thought this is cool. I could stay here for a while. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yeah, so I I, don't know, I can't remember how long I was there for. Um, funny story, I, I met my wife uh, some somewhere in that mix, and and uh, she was Melbourne based, so I I ended up leaving that job and moving back to Melbourne, and uh, and and then I, you know, then I then I kicked off my next my next gig. Uh, yeah. And for the life of me, I, I can't remember what it was, but I'll, I'll check. Um, I think I think after that, <laughs> I did a bit of a stint, mate. my uh, my my mother's, they had some galleries. So I, I took about six months just helping their businesses out, running websites, did a lot of web development, taught myself that, um, kind of set up a little small business, helping other small businesses out with website development. And uh, and, and then, um, yeah, then I ended up getting a gig uh, as a planner, surprisingly. So, you know, Peter Shepard helped me out. But um, with Suzlon, which was an Indian family-run company, third largest wind turbine company in the world and they were growing pretty fast at the time Uh, obviously wind power was pretty big at the time um, in in Australia so everyone was buying up land and there was a whole bunch of uh, utilities were trying to get in on it and so we were kind of a turnkey construction build company so we'd go and design it we'd go out there and do all the civil works and then erect the uh, the towers and as a planner that's a pretty a pretty good job because they build these wind turbine. I don't know if you've ever seen a wind turbine, but it's yeah, pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty big and they're pretty fantastic. And they're done in about three days. So they usually come in a few tubes and then you've got the nacelle on the rotors and they're all done with two cranes and a guy with a bolt. Um, so it, it, it really is. Uh, it really is fantastic because, because you, you don't always on a big job as a planner, get to see the life of the project and what you're contributing to or, the outcome of it uh, if you're building something big that goes for 10 years you don't really get to see the output so yeah so i get to see these things and we build like 20 at a time and i learned real fundamentals of kind of detailed planning uh in p6 so i think we had p6 by then yeah and then I, and then i got introduced to pmo so wow. again another really good manager named lee Newbury, who i still am in contact with uh Kind of him and I talked about strategy and planning a PMO and building it out, and uh, and that kind of got me on the PMO journey, which was completely different again. So just another whole bunch of uh, room for a bookshelf and a whole bunch of new books to read. <laughs> 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 and onward and we we went we went yeah. Wow. So so it didn't okay. it, it didn't stop you know it's uh I mean I could go on and on about the winter ones yeah, yeah. they're just fantastic. No, and, and also
1: you know renewable energy and all that kind of a thing is 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 big, and we're looking more and more as as a, as a world into how we we utilise um, renewable energy. So so that's that's actually quite a good one to have in your in your uh, on your CV. Um, okay, so you you, you kind of you you went from being part of controls, you moved for love. Uh, you're obviously still happily married with your wife with two kids, which is great. Um, yeah, yeah. And you, you, you kind of fell back into the PMO world with planning and then into PMO. I want to jump from there, from Australia to the UK. Um, how, how did that happen? How did you – what made you want to move continents? Um, how, how did that come up?
2: So I think um, at the time, I'd been on some pretty big Australian projects, and it wasn't it wasn't – Immediate to me, but I, I saw that there was a bit of a down turn in terms of complex So there's two things that I really like to do that. I I figured out pretty early one. I like to disrupt I like to make things I like to make change and I like to make lasting change and positive impact and all that And like you said continuous learning and the other thing I like to do is work on things that no one and do things that No one else has done before and, and that means doing complex projects and and really getting stuck into things that that are way above my head you know, and I'm okay with it. I like, I, I like a little bit. I like a little bit of drowning. I think I think it's good for your soul. To, um, you know, it 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 brings you back to earth. You know, a bit a bit of humility. You know, you don't know everything, and you know, take a step back. You're you're only as good as, as the seas you travel. If I'm going to be a sailor right now, and and so you you know, if you if you're just traveling smooth seas all the time. You're not going to be a skillful sailor, so you need you need a few storms.
1: So, yeah. so and, in the UK, and, and you don't grow in your comfort zone, do you?
2: You don't grow anywhere nearly as fast as you would in outside your comfort zone. I mean, it depends on your appetite. There's a lot of people that just haven't got that that structure in them, and I don't. Yeah. And I, I used to try and motivate everyone. There's there's the there's the problem in that sentence. I used to try to motivate everyone to be like me, and I realised. Uh, not. that's, not, that's <laughs> never that's never going to happen and most people need more than five six hours sleep so except parents as you know so i i uh i ended up yeah just just randomly you know there was some job off, offers on on linkedin and usually you know uh by that time i had a pretty good network in australia and mm-hmm. i knew a lot of contacts that had gone overseas as expats etc and uh it was, it was a girl uh, that i used to work with in tell us that ping me carolyn you know well she's like hey by the way we've got some some new bids coming up now i'd never did i'd never done any kind of full length bids i've done many bids but not not a big bid and uh i think they were bidding for so talus was bidding for deep tube with transport for london and they wanted a project controls manager which at that time i felt pretty qualified to do so i went through about 50 uh, interviews i don't know how many quite a few <laughs> I, I don't know why It just that's the way it is it's the way it is you got to jump through a few more hoops yeah it might it might have been they weren't sure and and uh and yeah then they gave us the ticket so we thought you know i talked with the wife and my kids were quite young um but we thought it would be a great opportunity for them to see the world and so it just it just made sense at that time to leave australia get some international experience um and see what else was out there and, and just just enjoy life so that's what we did and i i really enjoyed the bid so I worked with, uh, you know, obviously Talos is a French company, so we had a, you know, a few French people there, and we had a really, really good French um, bid manager, uh, Julien, and and we worked really well together, and he taught me a lot about the bid process and how gating manages and and, and managing that process to get the best out of the team because everything's very ambiguous at that point in time, you know, your tech specs aren't aren't all there, so you're taking a lot of assumptions from previous projects you've worked with the client and and just massaging that back into things that we knew. We understood like you know a schedule like how do you get a schedule to work in a, in a world where you're in so many uncertainties so that was good but then the bid was shelved uh, i think due to some overspend by crossrail I'm not sure i think that's a rumor and and then uh i spoke to another guy named craig who said you should come work for 4lm and 4lm happened to be or still is i think is one of the biggest kind of uh signaling Uh, brownfield sites in the world where they're upgrading the signaling and the capacity of the trains to run faster uh, in the subway london underground and i thought that sounds pretty complex and he had a pretty big team at the time and he said he needed someone to help him kind of run the project controls function of that so uh, i think it was probably about six months into being in london so i kind of had my ground i kind of knew the area My, my kids and wife were happy uh, and I thought, right, let's ha- let's have a crack at this one, and and then I ended up on 4LM heading up the uh, project controls piece, as you know, because you were in that
1: yeah. team. So, yeah. yeah, wow. And 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 you know, if I if I may add, uh, it, it, that is certainly for myself, and I think you you would say the same. Is it's probably one of the biggest learning curves I've had in terms of mega projects, um, oh, complexity, yeah. pressure. Um, you know the the simultaneous uh, requirement need to um, improve what we're doing as a controls unit, as well as the um, the BAU, the upkeep of the BAU, combined with the complex issues on site um, for the actual project delivery, cost pressures, the works. It 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 was a pressure cooker, if ever there was a pressure cooker, um, and you know there's there's probably. Um, no better way to learn um, than to get yourself into something that's really, really difficult. Um, so yeah, what what um, a great few years, um, certainly for myself and I think um, for you as well. Um, so so you you there? Uh, what, can you maybe share some um, with the, the, those listening? Um, what are the kind of the biggest lessons um, that you took away from? Um, number one moving continents um, but also with the young family for those maybe listening that have a young family and, and looking to to move into a different country what adjustments you had to make um, mm-hmm. and then also um, you know um, uh, the, the different culture what cultural shifts you have to make um, when mm-hmm. you have to do that move
2: yeah look I, I think when you're moving anywhere you've your first thought when you got kids is is it safe? And I know at the time, London was going through a whole bunch of kind of terror attacks. And whilst they weren't that frequent, although they did when we got there, they got a lot more frequent, um, they, they were things we considered when we, when we moved. So obviously finding a place that was secure to live in was important and making sure that the family was comfortable first. So we always had it in our back of our minds that if it didn't work out, we would just come home but the the expense overlay for anyone considering moving over to London is quite expensive. Now, I was fortunate that my mother was born in London, so you know, I, I had an ancestry visa, so it was easy from that perspective, but still quite expensive. You end up paying NHS uh, per year up front, so you know, 200 a year for 5 years times 4. It's it adds up in pounds. That's not uh, that's not Australian dollars, so you add the exchange on that it's almost double then you're looking at you know, maybe 20 grand to move over and probably only about a third of that was covered by the company. So, you, you know, you, you got to take into account the, the financial costs. And I actually took a pay cut uh, when I went, moved over there. So, again, not focusing on the salary, Dale, but more about the opportunity and experience and, and the and the managers that I was going to work for. I felt like that was a really good trade-off. And obviously, you've got Europe there. So why not? You know, you, to travel from Australia to Europe is pretty crazy and i felt like it was a great cultural lesson for kids so i think like most parents number one kids and the wife is happy and they're secure so we moved into uh, canary wharf which is the you know it's, i think it's the second largest maybe financial district in london but it's got it's got security guards 24 7. it's probably the most safest place to be and it's dead quiet <laughs> on the weekends uh so we felt like we were really secure there and there was always security guards around in the shopping mall and around the shops and the streets. And if you were stuck, you could ask them something. And um, if you know London, they've got the DLR, the Docklands Light Rail, which can pretty take pretty much take you anywhere from there. So it's a lot easier, cleaner, safer on the DLR than it would be, let's say, to catch the underground if you're on your own or my kids and my wife wanted to go somewhere. So I felt like they had multiple options to get around, and I thought that was good and important that they got out and they weren't just you know, fearing for their safety all the time. You need to you need to explore London because it's a beautiful city. In terms of the culture, it was funny because my wife's actually Chilean. And so, you know, she always used to give me shit for being white and having, you know, no real culture in Australia. And I used to laugh at her because I, I don't really care.
1: Which is probably uh, half true.
2: <laughs> yeah, probably, right? And and I guess Australians, you know, the culture is kind of loose. It's it's more uh, a way of life than it is a culture. It's not really, uh, it's a strange thing. But anyway, because Chilean's obviously got a very deep Uh, culture a lot of dancing a lot of eating I guess drinking and and she 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 got to London and she really enjoyed um the English culture and the heritage and the history and if you look around London City you see these old buildings and you you know it's quite it's quite a beautiful place even though it's incredibly dirty but it's got so much to tell and we, we visited a whole bunch of museums and she got a real appreciation for my heritage at least or some of it uh, and um, and and the people there are incredible. So such a diverse, I mean Australia calls themselves multi, you know, well, we are a multinational and a diverse country, but we're not you know we're not that big. Whereas if you cram like 11 million people into a city, uh, that's that and that, and it's living harmonio- or relatively harmoniously. I wouldn't say there wasn't problems, but that's really diversity. and we made so many friends from so many different places uh, who we still contact with. And it's just a fantastic kind of epicenter of really interesting and fast-paced career-type people, and there's a lot of people travelling, so you've always got something to talk about, and you're in common. And most people are away from their kind of motherland, if you like, so so you kind of band together. Um, and then if you see someone else who's from your country, it's kind of super awesome, and you just you know you, then you're BFFs. You know, I met a few Australians over there, and then. We kind of hung out a bit more, a bit closer. We hung out, and we laughed, and we took jokes. And so, and you know, and you were too for South Africans being in, in in London. So I think it's got a, it's a really good dynamic. It's not the it's not the only place I want to visit and work, uh, but it, it definitely was a good lily pad for anyone who wants to test their their family out living abroad. And 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 by the way, like you've got Europe there, so why wouldn't you take advantage of that? And I think we visited like fifteen countries in a year. So. I, wow. You can't you can't do that here, so yeah. it's a, it's a yeah. completely different story.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, um, if I may as well, London is literally it is the whole world in one city. Um, mm. it, it's a melting pot of cultures. You can literally get any cuisine, any culture, experience you want. Um, you'll find it somewhere in London, and you'll find it, um, it uh, with a really authentic experience as well, because the, mm. the people are. Literally, that that authentic. Um, mm-hmm. We're not talking about generations handed down. Um, there are constantly people coming in and out of London from all parts of the world. So that that was obviously a great experience for you, um, for your family as well. Um, what 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 then the next stage in your career where you're at now? Um, what what made you uh, take the leap to go back to us, and what what was the the thinking back there? Uh, I think it
2: was a reluctant one. I think we we probably could have. We could, we could have hung a, a bit longer in London and, uh, you know, we might – I'm not saying we won't go back. <laughs> there's a lot of people telling us to go back. Uh, well, I think for the kids, uh, we got a lot of family here and so, you know, they're getting to that point where there's high school and we thought we'd better do it for them and just, you know, if, even if it's for another five years while they go through school, it's probably beneficial. So, so that's, that's what kind of was the clincher and then there were some opportunities that came up from a, from a work perspective – and I, I always kind of ride the the bubble. So where there's there's good opportunities. Um, and I was I was happy to see that uh, you know 4LM had commissioned its first era, um, area for. So I got to see one of the major milestones of the project before I left, which I thought was fantastic. Uh, you know, after three and a half years of kind of talking about it and designing it and thinking about it and getting it all ready and testing it, and I, I could you know you could feel the tension in the teams because the morale was just frustrated and a bit low because we just wanted to hit that and we were a little bit late on hitting that first milestone i think when we did hit it it kind of lifted up the teams and it was great to be kind of part of that so then i thought well you know i feel like the team's in a a reasonably good spot and we've done some really good work and uh and some opportunities come up in australia so i took them
1: okay wow so you know just listening to you talk there i mean you know so far you're all your decisions are based around family decisions, and I think that's quite that's quite noble, and it's, it's a great cause. And you know, you certainly you know where your priorities lies is with the family, making sure the family are happy, and especially the kids. And that resonates with me. Having you know, kind of two on my own as well. I'm sure others listening to this will will understand where you're coming from. Um, so you, you've made family based decisions, but you still kept your options open with a, a longer term plan of of being able to to move around um where you're currently at is there anything you can you are able to share that's not commercially sensitive that won't put you into to trouble although you do like trouble um, about what you're currently doing and, and what you're currently working on and, and kind of some of the things you you're picking up and, and learning there? Yeah yeah
2: so I, I kind of dropped the um, the kind of uh, permanent role for a consulting role and I felt like you know this was the, the transition I was looking for. so so now I'm working consulting which, which for someone who likes to do many things all over the place, all the time, uh, you know, it really suited my personality. So I'm working on various projects with clients around Australia, um, particularly in Victoria where I head up the state and transport and infrastructure sector, which happens to be having a huge boom right now um, with over 158 billion. Now, they'll say something less, but I've mapped this out in, in Project Scheduler and I can tell you there's 158 billion worth of projects um, and that's across the, across the piece, rail, road, aviation and defence, ports, they all have to upgrade. And uh, what's driving that is, is the population growth. So they, they expect you know Melbourne to be probably the size of London is now by 2035. And if you think about that and you think about the infrastructure we have in Australia, it's not quite London. And so there's a lot of work that needs to crack on. And so I think everyone's just realising that's not that far away and we need to start building now. So uh, from a consulting perspective, we're, we're going in there and really focusing on project controls and PMO mainly uh, with some project management kind of consulting gigs. And I think, I think if I look, if I think about it, most of the work we're winning is around integrating information and it's all about data, data, data. There is just so much information. They, they were, they're having trouble articulating it. So I think you know my, my past history and my journey Kind of speaks for itself around communication but also integrating the data and understanding what it's doing and why it's doing it and how you're going to display it and then you know act on that be an informed an informed principle to make positive decisions rather than just reacting to the information in segmented or isolated compartments and so so one of the really exciting ones uh we've we just can be commissioned to start which i can share it's fine uh is digital command center where we're building a huge visual display which will cover the, the walls of the room and it'll be fully interactive with all your project data. Now, that sounds like a wet dream. For most project controls people, that is. Uh, but we've been commissioned to build one, so we're really excited about that. Myself wow. and the uh, Australian director kind of leading that. And the outcome is we hopefully you know share some information on LinkedIn and a few other sites about uh, how we go about uh, approaching it and, and how we go about deploying it because obviously we feel like there's a lot of companies that are ready for it and we just we just need to show them how and what's out there i think a lot of the time when you when you work with clients as well they 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 only know so much What whatever's within their sphere and not everyone's as a avid reader as yourself or me and 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 so their sphere of understanding of what's available to them is probably quite small and that's that's not their fault it's just it's just their perceptual view. And so you kind of can bring in some things from the peripheral and you say, hey, have you heard of this? And they'll be like, no. So let's give you a demo. And you find that, uh, and you especially found out at the Project Controls Expo, software is becoming huge in this market. And there's so many out there. And I, I, I counted at least five. I was there last week and I was at the expo and there's about five software companies I've never heard of. But they're all offering what they call PPM systems, you know, magical yes. systems that make all your problems go away. I think that's just so interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, so,
1: similar to the UK Project Controls Expo, there there were a number. I actually got quite a few um, leaflets that I need to go through and, and download a few demos. But um, yeah, there's a lot of people looking at data, big data. There were quite a few talks around it and, and how we harness that that data into information and speed of data and decision based on information yeah. rather than just, you know, gut feel. So, so yeah, so there's a lot of, of that going on at the moment. Um, and, and so I think you're finding yourself in, in quite a, a nice sweet spot, you know, in terms of where your interests lie at the moment, mm. so that that's great. Um, I just want to touch on a little bit about, um, you know, so although it's both of our voices on, on, on this, you know, what, we, what we're calling project chatter podcast, um, you really, the, the mastermind and the person driving this, you've, you've, you know, you've developed, you've taken the, um, web design skills you've picked up in your past experiences. You've got PMO daily, which you've, you know, you've put together, um, single-handedly really. Um, you, what, what is this for you and, and where's, what's the vision for it and, and, and why, why, and why do it? I
2: mean, oh yeah, so uh, projectlabs.co is. Um, oh, sorry, Pro- projectlabs is is the name you you ended up with. Sorry. We did, we did, We had <laughs> a few different names. I think yeah. I think the idea, and part in part experience, but also because I like to read and I'm, you know, what what I'd love to know is is if we centralised all the information that made you know our, our kind of craft uh, valuable, would people read it? And and the answer is yes. So. I've have had a huge amount of um, you know visits over there. so we we probably launched how long ago was it maybe a month ago with the so beta and what's interesting is is it is month on month uh, our or week on week our exposure is bigger you know by 1200 1300 2000% on social media and the articles are fantastic and and I think that's partly attributed to the to the writers so I can't take full credit the writers are writing blogs I'm picking up those blogs and I'm I'm syndicating. And I I think the reason why that's really powerful is because not every blog's gonna have a powerful web designer, developer behind them with the, the skills necessary to get the message out. And so I trawl the net on my spare time and, and look for really powerful people who are who are who are offering what we talked about before, free advice and and no one's you know not all these guys are getting paid but they're sharing their ways of working and they're sharing their ways of experience in terms of what worked for them what didn't work for them i mean there's some great articles i was reading the other day about responsibility in the workplace around project management and why we need to take back accountability and hold people to account and i was like this is fantastic i talk about this with my clients but are people reading them so it's about bringing all that stuff to the awareness and and letting people decide what they want to consume but but having it in, a, in, a, in an area where it's all centralized and it's being monitored and, and moderated so that, you know, there's there's really good quality coming through. And I guess from there, I would really like to think that, that that sparks some conversation around what's next for project controls. Now, for me, you know, being on the PMO planning project controls journey for a long time now, I think it's time for people to say that it's project controls is its own independent uh, organization or or uh, skill set, and the reason I say that is is you know PMO can can envelop a lot of skills, right, and, and develop a lot of different departments depending on the type of organisation. It might have a bit of commercial, it might have a bit of doc control, config management, but the project science piece, which is around the fundamental engine that's driving, that's under the hood, effectively of PMO, is project controls. And the reason why I think we're we're ready for this, maybe in Australia and, and maybe overseas, is you're finding a lot more organizations, particularly government ones, they're not asking for PMO managers anymore. They're asking for project controls directors. And those same people, they're at the executive level table. They're at the board tables. They're at their senior meetings. They're not uh, you know, uh, a subordinate of some other engineering manager or a project manager. So there's a real shift, I think, from just having a PMO ensemble to having a, a disciplined, controlled Precision machine, which is project controls, which runs the analytical side of, of the project and tells you where you are, where you've been, and where you're going. And you're going to find that data science and project controls are, are emerging. And uh, I, I'm really excited about it. So I'm, I'm really going to push that in Australia. And I hope people are, are keen to get on board. And
1: I'm, I'm keen to kind
2: of start fostering that kind of ideal.
1: So thanks for sharing that. I mean, you know, I guess it's a, it's a key question of you know people will ask why do the podcast and, and why do um, you know uh, projectlabs.co. Um, and and I think it's it's key that you you know what you're saying there is you just you just bring it all together in one one space. Um, and there's a lot of people out there with far more knowledge than I guess both you and I. Um, and, and, and if we can have that all in one place, what, what a, what an amazing um, resource to actually have at your fingertips. So, so I guess, you know, from my perspective, thanks for putting that together as well, because I certainly think it's a great um, source of information. Um, so, you know, I, I often think that, you know, learning about someone, their past, where they've come from, some of their struggles, some of their good things, learning their story gives you a real appreciation for who they are. Um, so I just want to thank you for sharing today. Um, and, and hopefully those that listen to your journey thus far, um, will take a, a bit of advice out of that and, and, and gives them something to think about and contemplate. Um, and yeah, so, uh, Hopefully, we'll have a, a few more interviews as we go uh, um, in, in future episodes. Um, but is, is there anything you want to add um, before we we close off?
2: No, no. Thanks. It was uh, it was great to share the journey. I think I I don't really think about the past too much. No, I guess no one does really. But it's good to get um, and maybe we do it with a few others, even, even some short segments, because I'm really interested in what your journey is too. By the way, uh, thanks for. <laughs> Thanks for the curly questions and I kept it pretty clean, so that was good. Yeah. Um, it didn't get it didn't go too dark too quick. It kept me on yeah. point as you always do. So that was great. And and just for the for the listeners, I think, you know, as we progress through these these podcasts, I really wanna shape them through feedback. So if someone wants to hear something that, that the podcast isn't giving them, you know, shout out to Dale or myself
0: and and we'll make it a subject matter.